Blog Talk Radio. Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. Hi, Laura. This is Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps program in Louisville, Kentucky. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's been kind of a week. It's been a and week. We won't talk about that, yeah, if you don't yeah. want to, but... We are just going to move forward with tonight's show, and I only have a few announcements which might surprise people with how the announcements have been running lately, taking up like 15 whole minutes, but let me just zip through a couple of these. And first of all, I need to start saying the show number at the beginning of the show because for a long time, Blog Talk Radio would not let me update, but it's for those of you who are listening that you're kind of keeping up, it's show number 117. Can you believe it, Kate? That's pretty impressive. And the title is Incorporating Motor Activities into Speech Therapy. And I'm going to do a big disclaimer about that in a minute. But first, let me do (laughs) the announcements. I'm going to be in Atlanta on July 14th. And then I want to talk about the Memphis conference that's turned into kind of a debacle. Uh, Yesterday morning, I woke up to an email from a speech pathologist who said, do you realize that the place we're going to have, the conference, the hotel is closing on July 17th, and the conference is July 21st. She had just heard it on the news, and so she was concerned. And that was the very first notification that I had gotten that there was a problem with the hotel. The staff had not called me at all. And so by the I was really flustered, and we scrambled, and we got a new place, and so I'm really excited about that. It's going to be at the Hilton Memphis, which is right down the street from the original place. So same date, same time, just new locations. So if you're listening, please don't have any reservations about registering for that date because it is a go, and I am so excited to be in Memphis since Johnny and I lived there when we first got married. It will almost be like going back home, so I'm excited about that. All right, <clears throat> announcements or announcement number two on the Facebook page this week for TeachMeToTalk.com. I wanted to talk about two links that I listed that I think could be helpful for listeners, either therapists or parents. One is to a company called Jewelry, and it's or Jewelry, and it's uh, those are necklaces that are chemical free. Have you uh, read a lot, Kate, about plastics that aren't good for babies because they have all those um, PB, blah, blah, blahs. I don't really know exactly. I think I'm getting the initials wrong. But anyway, th- these necklaces that you could use for children who need to chew to keep themselves regulated or if they um, maybe you're a little bit old to use a passy but they still need to suck. And we certainly have had children, Kate, that we've made chewies for to use, for the kids to use during therapy because it keeps them from putting the toys or whatever else we're trying to get them to do in their mouths. And if we can keep their little mouths busy, then their hands can do something else. So, again, I thought this was a great idea. And the link for uh, Kid Companions Jewelry is on the Facebook page. Hmm, I haven't heard about those. Those sound pretty cool. Well, I think it's, yeah, I think it would be good. And if if a kid needs those, his parents could order that, and that would be... An easy solution, I forgot how much they are. Uh, In the past, 
we have done used all kinds of things. Baby teething toys are again passies or um come up even with like ice maker tubing. Uh what other things have you made chewies from, Kate? I've done that you're calling it ice maker tubing. I guess that's what it is and it's a they sell those in therapy catalogs that are pretty similar. But that's mostly what I've used, and, you know, it's kind of child-specific. Some of them love them, some of them don't. But Exactly. And a lot of other therapists might use chewy tubes or other kinds of things, And um, but this seems like it would be a nice alternative. So that link is on uh, teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page. The other link that I posted yesterday that someone else sent me is a link to a site called earlychildhoodnews.com, and it's a website that has lots of uh, resources for teachers and parents of children, and they list the age ranges from infants to age eight. And I looked at it for a few minutes and just thought it would be um, worth passing on, especially to any of our um, listeners who happen to practice in early childhood settings where you might be seeing children in the classroom or have a practice that would include group activity. So um, I thought that, again, it would be a good resource. I wanted to pass it along, and the specific link is on um, teachmetotalk.com's Facebook page. Third announcement, thank you so much to the several West Virginia listeners who sent me ideas for hotels. I'm so excited about that because uh, we had really been coming up with the big fat zero on places we would want to hold a conference, so I've got some great leads on that uh, for West Virginia, and that's great. And I, I don't know if I've announced this on the show yet, Kate, that I got my invitation to speak at the Kentucky Speech and Hearing Association for next year. Have I talked about that yet? I don't think so. Uh Uh-uh. Well, I was very excited to get that and get that contract. And the reason I'm mentioning that is if you're in a state and you happen to be on that committee or you're in the position to suggest speakers, I would love to come to your state convention and speak. So I wanted to throw that little plug out there and use Kisha kind of as the way to do it. And I always um, love Kisha since that's my home state convention, and it'll be fun because it's in Louisville next year, so it'll feel like it's, again, oh, a crowd. Yeah. yeah, so that'll be great. All right, those are all the invitations. Invitations. Those are all the announcements, and I got through that in six minutes. It might be a record. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. <laughs> all right, let's move right along to tonight's question, and this person wanted to remain anonymous, so I'm going to try really hard. I probably should just rip her name off here so I don't say it by accident. <laughs> You know how I am about that. (laughs) All right, and this is her question. She says, I listened to your podcast last week, and you mentioned that you needed some ideas for topics. I have a few um, as a developmental therapist that may apply more to Kate. So, Kate, we're counting on you to come through with some big answers for these questions. (laughs) Okay. She says, (laughs) with state cutbacks, it seems like as a DT, and again, in lots of states, those are called, in our state in Kentucky, you're developmental interventionists. Lots of states call them special instructors, early childhood educators. Um... I don't know. I think those are therapists, which is what she's yeah. referring to herself as, yeah. I guess. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, a special teacher, anything like that. So that would be someone with an educational background that's working with young children. And she says, it seems like as a DT, I'm getting more clients that have global issues. She says, I'm often the only therapist on a child's team, where in the past many of these kids would have had several therapists. She says, I know I'm not the only one, nor is Indiana the only state making cuts. And isn't that the truth? Because our state has gradually been putting policies in place, oh, gosh, for like 10 years that limit uh, services and that, Again, I'm not trying to be overly negative, but certainly some of the children that we're seeing now that have lots of issues have fewer professionals on their team than they might have had if they were getting services in previous years. And I think that's fair to say. I do, too. The other thing is sometimes it's a reflection of where people live. If they're in more rural areas, it tends to be harder to get more, you know, uh, people to go there. You know, I don't know why, but... It's uh, the travel issue. It can be far, and if you're way out, it's hard to get people to drive to you. And since we provide services in people's homes, that can make it hard to get folks to go to more rural settings. Exactly, and especially if you have, um, if your discipline happens to have a shortage of that discipline in specific areas. You know, uh, speech therapists in some states. Uh, we were talking to therapists when we were in Louisiana and Missouri, and there's just a gluttony of speech therapists there. Whereas really? In lots of, really. Mm-hmm. And in lots of places in Kentucky and in Indiana, there are counties that, as, you know, no speech therapist services. So it just kind of depends on where you live, like you said, as to what services might be available. And certainly I worked when I first went into private practice in some of those counties in uh, southern Indiana where it was hard to get even a PT or an OT sometimes. So, that, again, it could be due to several factors that a, a child may not have access to services. And so she goes on to say, could you mention your favorite ideas to incorporate fine and gross motor skills into play? For example, fun, and she capitalizes fun, which I thought was really cute, fun ways to work on climbing, walking up and down the stairs, using both hands together to string beads, using utensils, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks so much, your anonymous fan. Um, So that's what we're going to talk about. And I've already kind of hinted that I wanted to make a big disclaimer (laughs) to say that I am certainly not saying that as therapists, when we see a need in another area of development, that it is, uh, even if you're in a state who has really cut to a bare bones program and even if there are other factors like you are the only therapist that serves that whole county and again if you're in a more generalist position like a developmental therapist or developmental interventionist and certainly you are um, you do have training in addressing these issues because the, the all state programs feel like you're certainly qualified to administer those five area assessments and I'm talking around it but I'm what I'm trying to say is even if all those factors are present 
and you truly feel that a child has a developmental need that you are not qualified or comfortable addressing, it is okay to say, I will serve this child, but he still needs a physical therapy evaluation. He still needs an occupational therapy evaluation. It, if he can't get it through our program, okay, let's find another community resource for him. You know, I hate when therapists feel like just because the program that they're working for might have some limitations that they don't go ahead and, and just put it out there to parents like, yeah, we can work on some of this stuff, but... You really still need for him to see a physical therapist because this is more than I can handle. When we were talking about this before the show aired today, Kate, you said a really (laughs) cute thing when I said, don't you feel like that too? And so you certainly have had that situation where you might evaluate a child and, and because there are global delays, you're still kind of addressing motor skills or whatever else, but there are still situations where you might say to a parent, you're going to need to do more than, you know, more than me for this. Haven't you had that happen? Absolutely. I will say, though, generally I tend to service areas that we are able to get those other disciplines, and, it, you know, we talk about a global delay, and sometimes I see kids that may be, quote-unquote, globally delayed, but it's fairly mild. Um, you know, their development is fairly typical yet delayed, and then there are those kids who are globally delayed who really have very significant delays, and those are the kids that I particularly try really hard. But, I mean, I'll always say we may need to get a, a different therapist in here. It's really hard when you can't get them, but I think you always need to say this really isn't my area of expertise and I do not consider myself an expert. I'll share with you what I know, but, you know, don't be afraid to to admit you it's out of your league. Exactly. And so even though we're going to talk about some ideas and some things that we routinely include in therapy that might be, viewed as working on motor skills or viewed as targeting fine motor, we are not saying just because we're giving you these ideas doesn't mean that a kid that you're seeing might not still need to see a PT or an OT. And and we're not trying to be the end-all, be-all here, nor are we taking responsibility for anything that we might say. (laughs) This is, again, the disclaimer portion. And we're certainly not saying that it's all right for um, a therapist just to kind of look the other way when there are clinical needs that a therapist is not qualified to address. You need to make that really ethical decision to tell parents no matter what your program says what they really need to hear about their kid. And best case scenario, we would also want him to see a blah, 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 blah. And again, some therapists are reluctant to do that because they think their administrators are going to get mad or the program's going to say, well, we don't have the funds to support that. That's like for kids who need to see a speech therapist more than once a week. And then, you know, I get, I've gotten emails or read on listservs where therapist might make the recommendation that the kid needs really intensive speech therapy and say, especially if there's something drastic going on, like a feeding problem, in addition to a communication issue, and then a program person saying, you can't recommend services more than one time a week. Well, sure you can. You can recommend 
anything, you need to recommend what your clinical judgment tells you to recommend about that kid and whether the program that you're working for can provide that service or the school system that you're working for can provide that service. It's a totally different issue versus what a kid really, really, really needs. And, again, I think therapists get reluctant to go with their gut feelings with that because they think that there might be legal implications or, you know, if they say that the kid needs therapy more than the program provides, you know, that's just then up to the parent to find a way to make that happen. So I want to make sure that anyone listening... I mean, they may choose not not to, but it's really important that you share what you think is best case scenario and best practice and, you know, if the parents are able to to act on it great and if they're not you've said what needed to be said so right you know. and you're covered from mm-hmm. a legal perspective from an ethical perspective from laying awake at night in your bed wondering if you did the right thing you know then you're <laughs> totally covered uh, by that so you always want to give parents your true professional opinion and then again if your program can meet that great if they can't great you know the the there are other ways to work it out, or not, like you've said. But you need to do um, <clears throat> what's in the kid's best interest. And the the other situation that happens with this kind of thing is when you have, say, a child that has cerebral palsy and really has severe tone issues. And some of the things that you might be doing with this child may not even be or may be contraindicated for him. Or say that the kid has... Um, severe feeding issues, and you don't have any training with feeding. You know, my opinion then would be, if you're not qualified to do it, don't do it. Don't provide the therapy. The other opinion about that would be, well, it would be better for him to get something rather than nothing. And I can see that argument, but, again, if you aren't qualified um, to treat that, I think you need to pass it along to another therapist who is. And I routinely would, not so much now because now, you know, I, I get the kind of kids that, that I'm good at or want to see. But at the same time, if someone, when they call me and set, and start talking to me about the referral and say, oh, this is predominantly a feeding kid, I say, you know, I, I have those skills, but that is not what I choose to treat right now. And so he is going to be better being served by another therapist who really specializes in that and let me give you some names. And that way I feel like I've addressed what that kid really, really needs, which is an expert in feeding. So, again, that's kind of the disclaimer portion of the show. (laughs) And now we can move on to talk about how we would work on motor skills as a part of our therapy sessions. Again, and Kate, you've already said it might be a kid who technically has some delays but would be on the milder end of... uh, of that severity rating so that we would feel like yeah, right. and I guess the ones that I would do. find most mm, concerning as far as treating them myself would be those who do have kind of really atypical tone issues, right. really atypical, you know, even if they're just really delayed but everything seems to be kind of... Um, coming along at least at a typical in a typical pattern, those kids are less concerning to me than a child who may have cerebral palsy and has tons of tone issues and is doing lots of arching and thrusting and 
posturing and you know that's like ooh that's a little a little <laughs> that's when we well, need that PT and that OT in there as far as I'm yeah you know, for me so. yeah and I totally agree with that or a kid who had really limited use of his arms or hands I w- I would say you know we need an OT to look at this and tell us some ways to really target these motor skills you know there's some of course we're going to look at using his little hands as we play but i would make it darn clear to those parents that you know i'm a speech therapist or in your case i'm a di and i have some general knowledge of this and i always liken it to like if you had a really severe heart problem you could go to your general practitioner and he could probably muddle through but why wouldn't you just go on to the cardiologist and again if you lived somewhere that the general practitioner is all you had well yeah you would rather go to the doctor some kind of doctor to treat that versus none and i know that there are family doctors in little towns that deliver babies probably all through the United States and world, but if you had access to an obstetrician, that's what you would want to do. So I'd kind of liken it to that, too. Um, so I feel like you do, Kate, if it's, if it's more of an abnormal thing, you would probably bow out and say, we can't, you know, I can't address this, get this stuff going before I get in there. But for the milder kids, that's what we're going to talk about. And, again, we've, I think we've done a nice job on on characterizing what we're really trying to describe <laughs> as what we would tackle and what we wouldn't tackle. Right. And the truth is, for me anyway, and Laura, I suspect to to maybe a little bit lesser extent, but a lot of times the kids we see, even though our primary focus may be communication, may be cognitive development, may be play skills, you know, as that relates to communication and cognitive development, a lot of times our kids, in a milder way, do oftentimes have some, technically speaking, fine motor delays, some gross motor delays. You know, rarely do you see a child who really only, well, pretty rarely anyway, do you see a child who really only has a delay in just communication, just cognitive skills, just fine motor skills. Yeah, and the way that state programs are rewriting their eligibility requirements it's more and more rare that you see right. a child with really only a mild communication delay and nothing else because he or she no longer qualifies for a lot of these state programs. Their parents have to access their private insurance or pay privately or whatever because the state eligibility requirements are changing so that children with only really significant delays, and usually, again, it is more often than not a kid with, you know, if you're doing that, big five-area assessment, he would score down in more than one area. So you're exactly right. And we certainly see children, and again, fine motor delays often accompany speech delays because if you'll think about it, speech really is kind of a fine motor task. (laughs) And so we often see our little guys that aren't pointing and that aren't really, don't have great play skills because in part those are dependent on them being coordinated coordinated enough with their little hands to 
have progressed to the point that their play is coming along where it looks more on the normal range. I mean, more often than not, we are looking at children, you know, no matter what discipline you are, with delays in more than one area. So it certainly is common for a speech pathologist to be working and a developmental interventionist to be working with children who exhibit these kinds of delays too. And her big question is, you know, what do you do when you're the only person? And and I do think her question applies more to things that aren't scary for the developmental therapist or interventionist to treat. So we all do this. So that's what we're going to do tonight is talk about our favorite ways or our favorite little routines or our favorite games to incorporate um, working on motor skills, whether you mean to or not. I mean, I'm never going to go into a kid's IFSP meeting and really say, I'm in my therapy sessions as I'm addressing fine motor because I'm a speech therapist, but we certainly might have included that as part of our therapy thing, and I've worked long enough to be able to think about motor skills and think about, you know, therapeutically, this we're also targeting this in conjunction with our um, communication goals as well. I think that's what you meant, right, Kate? It is. Yeah, it's yeah. sometimes interesting when you are on teams with, say, an OT, or particularly I see it with an OT when, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of times they they might do a lot of the same things, and parents right. notice the car- the carryover, the the um, the fact that, gee, the that's overlap. something. That, yeah, the overlap. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, and I always joke and say, yeah, my focus tends to be, does he understand it? Does he make attempt to do it? Can I get, you know, will he do it again? Um, does he see, really cognitively, is he is he with it? Is he f- trying? OTs, their emphasis tends to be more about, you know, what kind of grasp did he use? Did he do it in midline? Did he, all these very OT fine motor kinds of things. Hey, Nicole, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and I'm like, hey, if he can do it, I I don't tend to be as concerned about the quality of the movement, the right. motor plan involved. I want to see does he understand it, does he persevere through it, does he try and, and can he actually accomplish the the task? But a lot of how times functional it's... is it? And mm-hmm. that's the other thing. And we certainly, I mean, sometimes physical therapists might say about a two year old, oh, he's talking all right when he's that kid's using jargon, or when a kid might have such huge speech intelligibility problems that nobody understands the darn thing he says, but the PT is like, oh, no, he's talking, he's communicating. And so, again, the the things that we look at, you know, I'm going to be pickier about communication skills than a PT would be, and they certainly are going to be more technical and more specific uh, PTs and OTs when they're looking at any fine motor or gross motor skill than we would be because, frankly, we don't have the training. We don't even have the terminology to be able to think about it or talk about it or assess it in the same way that they would. But we can still kind of address overall um, at least setting up the situation for the child to practice emerging fine motor and gross motor skills when there may not be an opportunity. And frankly, even though we're not specifically trained like a PT and OT would be, we still probably have some some tricks that we can pass along to parents that parents might not think about because, again, even though we're not experts or specialists in this area, 
we have worked a while and we do know what it should look like in typical development so we can get kids kind of moving in the right direction. Again, if it's only to practice, if it's only to provide the additional opportunities for those skills to emerge, whereas left to their own devices or with what their parents are currently doing at home, they, they may not have an opportunity to even practice those emerging skills. So that's, again, how we would address these things. So. I think the way that I address more gross motor skills than anything would be the social games. When you're playing Ring Around the Rosies, when you're letting a kid jump in your arms or jump on and off the couch or um, when you're running to chase the balloons or chase the balls or anything like that. I, am again, may not be specifically looking at how like you said, the quality of movement there, but we're giving the kid the opportunity to use those gross motor skills in a fun, developmentally appropriate way when we're doing those kinds of things. Kate, when you are, as a developmental interventionist, sometimes you might even um, have that written as one of your goals, or do you not, on, on the kids that you're currently seeing or have seen in the past with gross motor skills? I certainly have. It's not something I do as much of now probably as I used to, you know, earlier on in my career. It seems like, well, I tend to see a lot of speechy communication kind of kids. So, right. you know, I'm not going to say I don't ever, but I, um, a lot of times if I were on a team with a child like that, there would be more, I, as I said, my disclaimer earlier on was I lean towards functional play skills. Um, you know, and and you have to have a certain amount of gross motor control, fine motor control. Now, am I going to put that on the IFSP? Probably not. Um, right. Because unless it was maybe a 15-month-old who's not walking, maybe generally right. that child's probably, or maybe an 18-month-old child who's not walking, probably going to have a PT unless it looks like, Gee, everything's fairly typical. She's just a little late. I might, but I, frankly, I haven't had something that that gross motory singled out um, in in quite a while. Um, so, so what would you do if you did get that though? Since theoretically it could happen, what kinds of yes. things would you do? Would you look at that kind of in the context of social games, like I was talking about? Well, if I really got an, on an IFSP and that was really a, something we were really focusing on, I probably would do some, um, I would do those things. I don't know. I may do more specific kind of things to address balance, things to address strength. I think yeah. that um, because our emphasis is different, or maybe our approach is different sometimes because we're used we're, we're the players as opposed to the ones who make them quote unquote work with you know climbing right. stairs and <laughs> really right. you know has to take ten steps independently. Um, sometimes I think we're, we may have a leg up. You know if we have a strength that some more um, other disciplines may not have, it's that we seem to know how to make it more fun and. It right. can be hard sometimes to make something that's physically very challenging for a young child to do, like right. you know, get from sitting to standing, um, bend down you know, and pick and up a toy. 
you know. And I do things like that all the time, but just, again, kind of instinctively, and I know if a kid is working on that with their physical therapist or with their mom, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to give him a reason for him to want to stand up. So what I would do in that situation is, is hold something up higher than him that he wanted to get, like, or if we were going to uh, pop bubbles. And the, I know that crossing midline is something that he doesn't do kind of as a fine motor thing to get ready to be able to do the gross motor stuff. Or I might be saying that backwards. But anyway, I would know, okay, I've got to blow bubbles on this side of his body, but I've got to hold the arm that's, closest to it down so he's going to be forced to kind of reach across his little body with his arm to get that and again those are kind of common sense things that we learn as therapists and not necessarily that we've been uh, trained on if you had a new walker kate and he acted like he were gonna he was going to stand up and want to walk to you you would probably scoot back a step or two or kind of shimmy backwards on the floor. Haven't you done that when when a kid, when the mom goes, oh, I think he wants to walk to you, don't you instinctively kind of back up and challenge him a little bit and make it a little bit harder so he's got to take four or five steps rather than two or three steps? Of course. Or uh, yeah. dangle whatever it is they want and kind of pull them along with the, here you come, <laughs> come and get it. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and so you're just going to incorporate those things again in play activities. And I hope that the, the therapist that wrote the question didn't think that we were going to say anything otherwise than you've got to make that part of your activity and part of kind of the fundamental reason that they're playing. But as she already knows that we always try to do is make it fun so that the kid is more likely and like you addressed this too, Kate, to want to participate in that. So she's asking for some specific ideas about climbing. What would you do for climbing, Kate? Oh, my. Um, I, I would definitely try the, you know, first you have to know them well enough or figure out as you go what motivates them. What do they like? Put it up on the couch. See if you can't get them to try and get up on the couch. Put it up on a couple steps, you know, up a couple steps and see if you can't get them to try and uh, creep up the steps. I mean, usually out of reach is pretty motivating for climbing. <laughs> yeah, and the PTs that I work with that work on climbing do, I always, if I follow them, if I happen to just kind of overlap with them on the session, they almost always have the cushions off the couch. So the kid is, again, kind of using that as maybe that in-between step to being able to get up on the couch without, uh, you know, any kind of little boost or whatever in there. I have had a therapist um, person that always kind of put the beanbag in front of this one little kid's home so that he could have help kind of getting onto the couch that way. Um, I think working on those little child-sized slides are a lot of fun for climbing. That's what I've seen lots of PTs do um, in the past is, is either cart one into a home or use one that's already there or suggest to mom or dad or grandma that they um, purchase or borrow one of those things for um, practicing that before you get outside on the big playground equipment. But you can always look at a kid's ability to, to climb in that um, kind of situation. Any other ideas for climbing, Kate? Mm, those are my kind of go-to things. I've had them, 
try and try and get them to climb over my legs if they're really just. No, I guess it's not climbing, but if they're early crawlers, <laughs> yeah. motivating them to get them. You know, can you get them to want what's on the other side of your legs? Um, yeah. And I usually it's so funny when that would when that happens for kids too, or when you don't necessarily want them to have what's on the other side of your legs, and when right. you're using your legs to kind of block the path. <laughs> that's when they seem to try to want to do it. So that's, uh, for whatever reason, a little more enticing for a kid, too, when you're acting like, I don't necessarily want you to get this, and they seem to want to climb over it even more in those kinds of situations. I don't know that, you know, like I said, I, I have had a few of these kids, but generally my focus is usually, I, I would say, as a rule, I do a lot more fine motor kind of stuff in general, than I do gross motor kind of stuff. Yeah, because I always laugh about this, and I always say, you know, the PTs and OTs are are saying, move, 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 but so many times as speech therapists and as GIs, we're saying, sit, 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 but after we've gotten them kind of regulated and done our movement stuff so that we know that they're ready to sit, but usually that's when they're, um, when we're going to see those better play skills is kind of when they're sitting there. So we've already kind of fumbled our way through gross motor, so let's move on to fine motor, (laughs) which I think we both um, are a little bit better at addressing and incorporating into therapy sessions. So using both hands together to string beads is what she said, use utensils. Got some good ideas for those, Kate? Well, utensils, my definite go-to thing is do it with the baby doll, do it with whatever character they're into. I've had lots of kids who showed little or no interest or aptitude feeding themselves, but by gum you give them the spoon in the bowl and you model what you do, and then <gasps> mom's saying, oh, my gosh, she's using that spoon and giving him a bite. You're giving the baby a bite. It's like, yeah, right. that can be really motivating. <laughs> I've had a lot of kids who did it, you know, for number of sessions with me, and lo and behold, in a month's time or whatever, they're beginning to do it with themselves. So um, that one's an easy one, generally. I think so, too. And so many kids naturally want to bring things to their mouth when they're uh, playing and practicing. I think sometimes therapists or parents try to address it so that it's kind of, it's they're not addressing it when it's not as much pressure. And the other thing that we see parents do, too, is they think that a child can learn how to use utensils without being messy, and that does not happen, <laughs> even with typically developing babies. There's a period where they need to hold it and lick it and swirl it around in the air and all those different things that they do before you're really going to see a ton of get it to the mouth perfectly every single time. So I think the biggest thing that we can do is just provide those opportunities for practice. And so if you were working on it, if that were one of a kid's goals and you were going to try to introduce that, you know, you would use a snack that required utensils after he's had kind of that practice time like you've talked about with baby dolls. I know other OTs that we've worked with that who have children that are working toward using utensils might also um, use spoons or shovels or scoops or something when they're playing with beans or when they are, um, you know, any kind of, like, material like that, beans, rice, pasta, anything that you're going to put in one of those Rubbermaid containers and, hide, you know, for a speech therapy activity we would be hiding 
plastic uh, characters or animals for the kids to find a name. And so to address that utensil use, too, you're going to throw a couple of spoons in there or shovels. Or, again, um, I like to use those laundry scoops that come with powdered detergents because they have the cool little handle on them. And kids like to use those, don't they? Mm-hmm where they're practicing. So that might be um, kind of a prerequisite activity that she might include. Um, you would want to recommend to mom that they include handled uh, utensil kinds of things in the bathtub so that they, again, have all that practice holding it and scooping with it and using it so that it's um, included more as um, more opportunities throughout their day rather than just a utensil at mealtime. So I think that that would be one way that she could incorporate that. And those would be fun things to do. And she could use an activity like the rice or the beans or whatever to accomplish lots of her goals when she's uh, working on that in therapy sessions. I so that's kind of... utensils with um, not only baby play, but, uh, you know, like pretend uh, food play where we use the microwave and we use knives. And kids love to use knives even if they... Never, ever, ever use a knife, which normally our kids don't because they're little, but that's why it's cool. Right. Um, and, and then also with Play-Doh yeah. play, I usually use yeah. spoons, and if nothing else, I don't want to encourage them to eat it, but I do usually <laughs> give them the can and say, you know, do you need it? You know, here's a spoon. Take it out. Take it out. And if they're right. motivated to get the Play-Doh out, they will usually try and use the spoon to, to scoop it out of there. Yeah, and, and that's um, that's a great way to um, handle Play-Doh with their kids that are a little more tactilely sensitive, too. I've mm-hmm. used spoons in that way. When a kid didn't really want to touch Play-Doh, you use a tool then, and they don't have to touch the Play-Doh as much, and they're more likely to want to use it then. Back to the pretend food, the microwave, uh, and then with cutting the Velcro food, that's what you were talking about, but I don't know if you said that specifically. Right. Uh, in therapy catalogs you can get the pretend food that's oh like 30 or 40 dollars but do like kate and i do and just go to walmart and find the 10 dollar set mm-hmm. um or toys r us or wherever and i think those are a little easier to find now than they used to be i see those all over now for but for a long time it was a hard it was hard to find those. Are they back at walmart to, again i that's where originally i remembered Ten years ago, Laura, you called me and said, I got the neatest Velcro fruit. <laughs> so, of course, I had to rush to Walmart to get all the sets available. And for about six months, they had them for 10 bucks, And they were, and I still, right. believe it or not, have the same. Me I had too. To, I've had to glue the, the uh, Velcro spots back on a few times, but they still work. But then they didn't have them. And then more recently, I guess in the last few years, only Toys R Us had them. Are you thinking they're back at Walmart? You know what I think I've seen at Walmart? It's the toys that look like they're knockoffs of Melissa and Doug's toys. They're almost, they're wooden, and it used okay. to be. Okay, Yeah, and they have some Velcro things there. Now, again, they probably don't have 10 or 12 different fruits and vegetables like we got in our original cheapo set that we're both mm-hmm. still using, mm-hmm. but I think that there might be a few um, little pieces in there that would be cuttable with the right. knife. And then I do think Melissa and Doug, um, that toy line, oh, they and they're a little pricier. Them, huh? I yeah. will say, though, my experience has been a lot of kids seem to like the plastic better than the wood. Yeah. I've had moms invest in the nice wood sets. 
and I actually have one myself now because one of my nice mommies gave me a set, but it just seems like there's something more fun about chopping that plastic up better than <laughs> Well, I think it flies across the room. I think that it's lighter, and when you chop it's it, lighter. it really seems, yeah. I think yeah, that's and it, probably it. I don't know what it is. Well, but. I think the pieces are chunkier but not so big that kids can't handle them. They're just kind of the right size for a little fat toddler hand. to. And I'm always helping kids use both hands with that, putting one of their hands on the left side of the fruit if they're right-handed and then taking their little hand you know, especially the first time when they don't know how to do it yet, you know, putting the knife in their little right hand and then helping them use both of their hands together because so many of our kids don't do that. Have you had a lot of kids like that too, Kate, that they'll try oh. to cut it, cut the fruit, and you think, gosh, if you would just stick your other little hand over there hold it, that would be a lot easier. But that's the problem. They're not coordinated enough and they don't have good enough motor plans or problem-solving skills to think, what can I do to make this easier? And so you have to, you know, use your tell them, show them, help them model where you're going to tell him, oh, use your other hand. And then if he doesn't put his hand right there to help stabilize the part of the fruit that's, you know, he's trying to hold on to so that he can cut it in the middle, then you would um, show him how to do it. And then if he still couldn't do it, you would do hand-over-hand assistance so that he could, um, you know, you, you could help him. And then he would be more successful to do it that way. But I, I love doing that uh, pretend food with um, cutting because I haven't found a two-year-old yet who didn't like to do that. And sometimes I'll think kids aren't ready for it, and then they surprise me and they're able to do it, and then they kind of fixate on it a little bit. And I think, well, no wonder because on some level he or she knows he needs to practice. And so we might do that for a good long um, part of the therapy session. They might not even get to what I would think would be the really fun part, which is putting it in the microwave and pretending to cook it, you know, because they kind of want to sit there and cut and cut and cut. Have you had kids do that too? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Then you got to kind of hide it a minute and try and get them to move on to this. <laughs> oh, I've had lots of kids who are very into chopping things. Yeah, they really like it. Well, and, and I too, do think it's need... part of that novel. They Nobody ever would hand them a knife and say, cut this, and they're like, ooh. Well, yeah. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's kind of a power thing. And, again, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty fun watching the other half of the banana fly across the room when you cut it really, really hard. And, and two, I think, again, just the whole I'm in charge, I've learned how to do something new. What kid doesn't want to feel that sense of accomplishment? And so they they can get a little bit fixated on it. But the more practice they get, the better um, then you would start thinking about that whole quality of movement, blah, blah, blah stuff. So we have to let them practice with those things, too. Okay, what about stringy beads? I love the Alex, um, I think it's called Alex, the sets that, oh, let me see if I can find it online real quick, that have, um, is it just called Alex stringing sets? Is that what it's called? Do you you have some of those sets? Mine is I have a farm set, and then I have one that's a car and truck set, too. And those are really more enticing, I think, than doing just regular-shaped beads because from a language perspective, we um, have things to talk about. You're just not stringing a triangle and then a circle and then a square. You know, with my farm set, you know, there are different animals there. There's a tractor. There's a barn. Is that the set you have? 
I do have those, but I've had them for so long, long I have no idea who, you know, what they're called. I just, yeah. I just found it. It's an Alex Toys is the name of that company. And I get all my stuff now on Amazon. I should probably be getting a little cut from them as much as I talk about ordering toys from Amazon.com. But uh, it's called Alex Toys Wooden Stringing Sets. And, again, there's a set with vehicles that little boys love. And I like to practice and use these things. But, again, I'm looking at it more as a naming opportunity, and we're working on vocabulary. And I use it with my little girl who is about to turn three in August, and she's still kind of in that generalizing phase where every vehicle is either one day they're all cars but the next session they're all trucks and she does that with animals this last week the week before we had worked really hard on the word horse so guess what every animal she named this week she would go horse you know like did i get it is you know it would be something a cow or the dog and i would say it's the dog but it's so funny she's again more like um on the younger side of that 24-month level where she's still taking one word that would be in a word class and using it for everything. So that's why I like these stringing sets because you've got so many different um, opportunities for vocabulary development within one activity. And it's it's kind of good that they're all related and might look that way because that's an opportunity for me to point out the differences to her and show her, no, no. You know, or talk about this is a cow. He says moo. That's it's not the horse. The horse says nay, and and really practice where they're all again kind of related. Where she might be a little bit more um, inclined to use the same word over and over and over. So that's why I like doing those stringing sets. But I suppose you could focus on the fine motor things <laughs> using uh, the stringing stuff too. And I'm being sarcastic on purpose there. What are your favorite uh, stringing things, Kate? I have the same. I, I never would have known they were Alex sets because I've had them a long, long time. And as you're talking about it, it makes me think, I need to go to the garage and dig those out. I haven't used them in a little while. But I have the same. I have an animal set. I have a vehicle set. I do have some uh, of, like, brightly painted, cute shapes and things. Me but, too. But really, I'm with you on that. I agree. It's like, uh, I, you know, teaching a two-year-old what a triangle is really isn't um, much something I do much. So, yeah. or, or I even have, you know, we learn as we go, just as everybody. But at one point, I bought just beads that were different colors, and they're like one-inch wooden beads, which is a good size. But I never really spend much time on it's blue, it's green, it's yellow. Sometimes I will try and do some matching activities with just something like that, but I'm mm-hmm. with you. I would much rather talk about the tractor and the truck and the yeah. car and the airplane than the yellow bee, yellow circle, you know. Right. So, mm-hmm. I had a set a long time ago that I got from Walmart, and I think I gave it away because I have looked and looked for it several times over the last couple of years and can't find it. But they were in the craft section at Walmart, and I think you can get them at um, Michael's or somewhere like that too, but they were just little solid color plastic. Um, There was an animal set. There was like a set that were um, toys, just several little sets, and they came with just a little... um, 
plastic string and we use those and we and when I had my playgroup we would pretend to make necklaces and that's what I even do now with those bigger uh, string the farm set or string the vehicle mm-hmm. set. I think mm-hmm. the Alex set that with the vehicles is called string and beep. But if you're giving kind of an end result to that too, and they get sick of it after two or three ones, you can say no, 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 no. You know, we need more. We want to make a necklace. And then the ending activity is that you're going to help them tie it around around their neck or your neck or mama's neck or whoever. And they always kind of. After we've done it one session like that, then they kind of know what we're working for is to get to the point that they can wear it like a necklace. And I've had several kids use, you know, necklace, and I might even say, let's make a necklace as a way to introduce um, the activity rather than we're going to target fine motor skills working with the stringing beads or whatever today. <laughs> so I think it's a cuter, a cuter way to kind of do that. And I, um, I and think that, that more kids are motivated by whatever their thing is, tractors, cars, airplanes, right. all the boys tend to be the vehicle ones, you know, that's cool. Yeah. And as opposed to if you just use the plain old shapes or the circles with colors, right? Mm, you know, it's interesting how much more uh, inspired kids can be by just a little tweak of, you know, it's the same activity. You're sticking the string in there. You're trying to get it through. You know, OTs want to see that they can do that at a certain age. I think, um, you know, if you use something that they're very interested in or they think is cool, they are much more likely to stay with it and persevere through the difficult uh, task of doing it than a circle or, you know. Unless right. Unless one of those kids who love shapes, and then, then it might work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's good. All right, I did want to talk about pointing, and we may have glossed over this in, in a show about a month ago or six weeks ago. Do you remember talking about pointing, Kate? Yeah, I think we did. I think we did too, but I wanted to point out there's a section about that in my new therapy manual, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, and it's in the expressive language section where we're talking about um, using gestures and how important pointing is. And so many of our kids don't point. And sometimes it's a cognitive issue with um, they don't understand that they should point or, you know, kind of a communication issue. They don't understand that they can initiate communication with a gesture. But sometimes it's because they cannot isolate their index finger. And so that would be working on pointing from a motor perspective. And when I was writing uh, the latest therapy manual, I asked some of my best OT friends what were some ideas that they used to work on pointing. And I thought we could talk about this now since it's related to um, fine motor and gross motor. Because pointing in typical development, when do we see that emerge, Kate? It's usually by by one, that typically developing kids are isolating their index fingers, and again, they first learn how to do it kind of when they're pointing to a toy or activating um, activating a toy, or actually they learn how to do it when they're activating a toy, and then they learn how to do it when they're pointing communicatively. So you've got to get it from a functional uh, perspective first, which is what I was trying to say. So... How do you work on getting a kid to uh, isolate his index finger? And, again, there's a nice section about this. It's on page 132 if you happen to have the therapy manual. But there were some great ideas that the 
that our um, OT friends gave me. I generally hate electronic toys like the, you know, A, 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 when you're pushing that button. But isn't that Dark, a great way to get a kid frog, to learn how to point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good toy to use. Something like those little pianos or those, a lot of times those xylophone toys that come with the little hammer um, thing to uh, hit the little, what am I trying to say, Kate? <sighs> to hit the little uh, piece of piece of metal or whatever to make the tune. Sometimes they also have little buttons there for you to push. Right. To make, that would make the noise, too. Boy, I'm really struggling tonight, too. I don't know what you call them. I, I'm thinking, hmm, the key? Uh, the... Oh, that's a good word. Yeah, the key. But sometimes you can, the, those little xylophone toys will also have the little button there that you could push there. Uh, our OT friend Carrie said that she will let kids play with a pretend phone or a real phone because they might isolate their fingers to push the numbers on the phone when you might not get that otherwise. So she thought that was a good idea. She suggests making holes in Play-Doh, and one-year-olds think that's a hoot with, and it's not a lot of two-year-olds do too, but just sitting with, um, sometimes I'll make a snake or roll out, you know, a long skinny piece of Play-Doh and then show a kid how to make a hole there with his index finger, and that's a great way to practice that. Uh, other ideas, Kate, you want to jump in here? Uh, I've used things like, you know, we use what we have. My, one of my go-to things is I have a baby bottle that opens, and uh-huh. um, I'll put something in, usually something motivating, like a piece of a Teddy Graham, or depending on the child, maybe a Skittle or an M&M, and put it in there. One thing I'm looking at is do they know to invert it, and do they know to tip it over to get it out? A lot of them don't. A lot of and that's on your developmental test, isn't it? Right, right. So right. in the cognitive section. Yeah. The other thing, what they typically do if they don't get to invert it, is to stick their little finger down in the in the bottle to try and reach it. And again, it's well, they've isolated. It. Yeah. <laughs> what Go they ahead. Use? I'm sorry. Oh, that's it. I mean, that's just one of the things that I like to see. Hmm, what's he going to? A lot of times, they start with their finger in there, and then after they kind of have some exploratory play, lo and behold. They pick it up and dump it out, you know. If they don't, I show them how to do it. But getting something inside, I know years ago I used to hear OTs talk about putting things in egg cartons to see if they, you know, again, something motivating. Usually um, food is really good for that. So Yeah, (laughs) M&M's and Skittles. Mm -hmm. Some kind of junk food usually works really well for that. Um, I I have a little girl that's a book kid and she really loved Very Hungry Caterpillar and um, I'm talking about Emma Kate and she would put her, she would really learn how to isolate her index finger by touching those little holes in, you know, in the book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Do you know what I'm talking about where it has mm-hmm. um, the holes for the food as you go every day? That's really how she learned how to do that because she thought it was completely fascinating that she could, if I held the page up, that she could push her little finger right through there, and that's one of the first ways that we got her to isolate her finger. Another one of my go-to things that I do so instinctively, I had to, it, it, I had to sit on this topic for a, a minute before I thought, well, I guess I have to say I do that. 
Um, and I'm not a big long fingernail person, but how many kids have you inspired to use their index fingers to point by tap, tap, tapping with your yeah. index finger, like on a puzzle yeah. or in a book yeah. if you're pointing something out? If you just point to it, they kind of may not be that motivating. But if you tap with your fingernail, and usually they don't have a fingernail, but they try and tap, and nonetheless, you know, they, they're like, Right, Ooh, exactly. Did you, yeah. did you hear that tapping noise? I mean, you can just yeah. hear the, see in their little faces like, oh, that's cool. And then they get yeah. their little fingers out and try and tap, tap, tap. I'd say that's probably my the best thing Go I to. do. Yeah, just automatically, and kids are so motivated by that. I mean, they, you can just right. see like, wow, that's cool, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but this is a good skill to kind of look at and kind of look at from a motor perspective because a lot of kids come to us uh, in their communicative histories. They say that they don't point at all. And so you've got to start way back at the beginning with addressing. Can they even do the motor movement first? And some speech therapists might not even think about that, as that that's a place where they can begin. Well, no wonder he doesn't point, because motor-wise, he's not ready to point yet. He doesn't know how to close his other fingers and his thumb and just stick out that little index finger. And to some children, that comes quite naturally. And then the the part that they don't get about pointing to communicate is the communicative portion of that. But again, some therapists don't know that they need to start way back at the beginning. And I'm sure parents, some parents hopefully will be able to use these ideas too. Um, Okay, well, I'm going to let it put us out of our misery, Kate. (laughs) We're talking about this. I hope that we gave our questioner some ideas. And I think the takeaway... um, message from tonight's show would be that you've still got to make those activities fun and you still have to look at what would be a more enticing way to practice all of these functional fine and gross motor skills within the context of a play routine, which is sometimes, um, I've certainly worked on teams where (sighs) PTs don't necessarily do that. I mean, they might have a ball there. But they don't necessarily know, again, how to make that more fun and more exciting and more enticing. And that does seem to be our um, forte with that, even though it might not have sounded like it tonight, huh? (laughs) All right. On that note, we'll close. The next, uh, for the next week's shows, I would love to get, next week or upcoming weeks, I'd love to get your questions. So email those to me, alara at teachmeshock.com. The next things that we're going to talk about uh, two are our favorite new toys because I've I've got some new ones that um, I don't think we've ever mentioned on the show that I want to talk about. And I know we'll those are always fun shows, and I also want to talk about um, what product from TeachMeToTalk.com might help you as a parent or a therapist because I get multiple emails almost every day, several emails from somebody saying this is the scenario with the kid. What would you recommend? So I want to do a show so that I can say, listen to show number whatever, um, kind of as a general direction for parents and therapists who might want to email me that question. And then we're also going to do a show on what our typical sessions look like because I think from week to week to week we talk about all these things in bits and pieces. But it would be nice to talk about 
kind of from start to finish how we organize sessions and how we um, do that. So, Kate, over the next couple of weeks when you're working, I want you to start to think about that in the context of how we can talk about that and how when you know to move on to a different activity and maybe how many different activities your average kids might do. Have you, have you thought about that lately? Session not, session? not really. I'm so automatic a lot of times that, you yeah. know, when I'm in the trenches, I seem to know, or at least I usually know, And but to sit and talk about it, I'm not sure I could be mm, eloquent. <laughs> well. I'm going to think about it. Think about it over the next few weeks, and those will kind of be some upcoming topics. All okay. right. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye. Bye.